This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Recently, columnist and broadcaster Clarence Page won the prestigious Kiplinger Award for Distinguished Lifetime Contributions to Journalism. At the time, the judges said that Clarence has distinguished himself in every medium in a rapidly changing news media environment, tackling the thorniest issues with good humor and humility. More recently on a TV show, Clarence himself summed up his career by quoting this line, Lately it occurs to me, What a long, strange trip it's been. On today's episode, Clarence Page will talk about his long, high-profile career, in which he fearlessly grappled with some of the thorniest questions of the last 50 years. And he'll offer tips for new journalists, and the rest of us who are concerned about the state of journalism today. Clarence, we have known each other for quite a long time since we oh, yeah. uh, met working on the college newspaper at Ohio University. And um, I, I've i just been astonished and amazed and very proud of your very long and interesting career. And I, I want to congratulate you for one uh, recent development. I, I was so pleased that the um, you won the very prestigious Kliplinger Award for Lifetime Achievement in journalism. So congratulations for that. But Thank you. Th- th- does it feel kind of weird to be treated as, as sort of a historic figure at, at, at this stage of your wonderful career? How, how does it feel to, to look <laughs> back on all of those years and, 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 and some strange times? It is always sobering to get a Lifetime Achievement Award when your life is still going on. Yes. <laughs> but I, uh, no, I'm very honored by the distinction. And I'm also, uh, first of all, getting used to the notion that I, I am over 30 uh, after those years in college of celebrating uh, youth. Uh, now I have a much higher regard for uh, uh, what uh, uh, experience and wisdom. <laughs> and fittingly so. We, we should respect that. That's that's right. Uh, but I, uh, I tell you, as a journalist, though, I I've been through so many changes. Uh, we've all been through changes. This is a, a new media age we are in. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I, uh, I'm always re- reminded of that Bob Dylan line, you know, those who are not busy being born are busy dying. And so yeah. I keep myself alive and, and also uh, keep my uh, my uh, curiosity and my interest in uh, the world and people and uh, the various changes going on. And uh, I actually uh, like this new age in so many ways because we can do so much uh, with the Internet that we couldn't do before, whether for good or for evil. And all kinds of of new questions rise and new challenges, and I really appreciate it. Well, your comments on what's happening in the world and in our culture and our political scene and just in our daily life is um, always interesting, and you've been writing for many years, and I, I think your columns hold up pretty well. On the, on the, or in fact, very well. On, on the topic of news, though, I, w- I was looking again at your book, Culture Warrior, and by the way, that's warrior with a zero, with a, um, an O, not an A. <laughs> Culture Warrior: Reflections on Race, Politics, and Social Change. 
And you wrote, right. you wrote a little bit about news, but one of the things you wrote about, I, I think maybe in 97, is you introduced uh, the idea of a news fast and said that sometimes the burden of news is just overwhelming and maybe it's not a bad idea to take a break from time to time. Yeah. How do you feel about that now in this intense age? Thank you for reminding me of that because it's even more <laughs> necessary now and obvious now and more people are talking about uh, just the stress of the news and the, and, uh, the toll that that takes. First of all, on those of us who work in the news, and I'm surrounded by them just about every day uh, here in Washington, and also, uh, though, just the general public, uh, a lot of folks are tuning out to the news on purpose, and I understand why they just, and they told me, you know, they, they just find it too depressing, or it's too complicated, or uh, for various other reasons, they, uh, well, you know, uh, so much is happening now in the age of Trump. Uh, and, and he loves to generate yeah. <laughs> as much as he can. Uh, and uh, that um, has really uh, caused even more stress, I think. And um, I, I know my own personal life and uh, my family. We, we've uh, steered away from talking about politics at, at home, <laughs> especially when my son and I are... It's are, good to are, have uh, a break sometimes to keep the family too. going. Yeah, right. <laughs> there is more to the world than the news and politics. And... Uh, uh, I think that that's part of the mixed blessing of the Internet age, though, of course, because you can't get away from it. It's on your, on your smartphone. Uh, it's, it's on my Apple Watch. <laughs> Headlines popping up uh, er everywhere you turn. And uh, uh, it's not easy for everybody to deal with it on, on the one hand. On the other hand, there are a lot of people I know who need to know more about what's going on in the world. And I feel frustrated as a journalist because uh, they're tuning me out and, and other people out. Uh, who they ought to when they ought to be more engaged, uh, and so that challenge is still with us too. It's it's a difficult balance, but I love the some of the commentary about your career that I've seen lately because of that award, partly and also because uh, of you're always around on television and the gridiron and so forth. I I think that. Uh, your colleagues have talked about you as being sharp-eyed and passionate and yet able to struggle with all kinds of issues with humor and compassion and, uh, and a certain common sense. So it's, it's been great to, to continue to watch you. But here at Jazz About Work, we, we kind of like career stories. We like to see how it is people grow and stay passionate about what... Um, they do for a living and what right. they do for, for their, their work. And I'd like to take you back in time a little bit. You started out at the Chicago Tribune as one of, I think, very few um, black reporters, right? That's right. And you have been writing about um, many issues, but uh, race and politics and social change are among them for, for all these years. But what was it like as a, I don't know, a young guy from Ohio um, mm -hmm. without a, a lot of expertise of, in a very uh, intense news um, environment. What was it like to, to go to that newsroom all those years ago in Chicago? Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to roll back farther than that. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned our, our college newspaper. Uh, I could also mention my high school newspaper back in Middletown, Ohio. That's really where I consider my career began, although I wasn't paid. Uh, yeah. I probably learned more day by day uh, just from uh, being uh, a columnist, reporter, editor on 
a high school paper that came out every two weeks. Uh, and we had a wonderful advisor, Mrs. Mary Kendall, uh, who is uh, still around last time I checked. Uh, she just had her 101st birthday. Wonderful. And I, of course, thanked her right away when I received my latest award. And also, for that matter, when I got the Pulitzer back in 89, I have to mention this anecdote because I, I, when, I when I got the Pulitzer in 89, I, I uh, went back, uh, well, people were calling me up for interviews and all, uh, including uh, back in Southern Ohio. And I went back into my yearbook just to refresh my memory. And I found Mrs. Kendall had autographed my yearbook uh, with, uh, remember me when you win your first Pulitzer. Don't forget. <laughs> Wonderful. It was stunning. It was stunning. And, and I, I, I called her up and, and uh, she said, well, I always knew you could do it, Clarence. <laughs> it was really uh, uh, to me, I mean, this is like a, like a Disney movie or something, because she uh, inspired my interest. You mentioned uh, the, the race beat. You know, I went to high school in the early 60s, and I remember very clearly uh, the winter of 63, 64, uh, when uh, we had the March on Washington that I watched on TV. Uh, we had the four little girls who were killed in that church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, Ku Klux Klan bombing. Uh, then John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November. Uh, and then uh, in December and January, these four long-haired fellows from England called the Beatles arrived. And all of this was going on. Uh, I was following it all through the media, and, and I said, I want to be get out there and be an eyewitness to history. That was when I really decided, and that was partly uh, with uh, Mrs. Kendall's uh, advice and encouragement, because, you know, a kid from Middletown, Ohio, I didn't know how, how you get started in something like journalism. And uh, my track has been kind of like that ever since. The funny thing was that uh, there were not, there was still a lot of segregation in, in uh, media as elsewhere in our society. But in the mid-1960s, that changed uh, with uh, uh, riots and other turbulence going on and all. Uh, newsrooms began to open up, and that was how I was one of the first black reporters that the Chicago Tribune hired. And before that, the Dayton Journal-Herald, where I uh, uh, had my summer internship in the summer of 68, the, the, the dearly departed Journal-Herald, like so many other late newspapers. Uh, and I... Uh, uh, really, that experience was so valuable because uh, I didn't have to walk into a newsroom green. I can, I can walk into any newsroom and feel right at home, which is something that is kind of one of those strange sicknesses that we journalists have, that we yeah. are all part of the same tribe, but you know, we can walk into a newsroom and, and you just know right away, you know, where's the news desk, where's the feature desk copy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and uh, you're part of this uh, same old, old tribe or universe, such as it is. And also, uh, I think, you know, I, I was uh, diagnosed uh, as an adult with ADD. Uh, and uh, that's uh, something I, I, I got this test out of curiosity, really. And sure enough, I, I scored something like seven out of 10 on the ADD scale. <laughs> and I have this theory that. Uh, I've run across a lot of other journals that have ADD also, even though for my generation it wasn't diagnosed in those days. You know, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there's something about having ADD I think that helps you with the daily news because it, everything comes in bursts every day. Uh, something new pops up. I find myself having to become an expert at it in a hurry so that I can then explain it to my readers. And then forget about it because it's, it's a new day and there's another new story to jump into. All of this works together 
uh, to uh, have led to my becoming a journalist and still, after all these years, being unable to think about any other profession that I would feel comfortable in. Well, you've um, just alluded to something that I think uh, you've been very helpful with, and that's students learn journalism. You can start being a journalist when you're in high school. I have a feeling that in the context of uh, recent demonstrations in, uh, around the country on gun issues, we've got some young journalists starting maybe uh, even in their early teens. And yes. I, I know you've always been very supportive of interns. And I, I love the way in, in the field of journalism, there is a sort of a collective apprenticeship and that no matter where you are in your career, journalists are pretty great about welcoming very young members of their profession. Is, is that what you've noticed? Well, I know myself, I feel uh, an attachment to these kids. I, I've seen the, those Florida kids uh, there who are now leading the anti-gun crusade around the country, and, and, and a couple of them uh, are student journalists. And uh, the only difference, well, and I love talking to students, let me point this out, uh, uh, high school journalists, college journalists, uh, because they're really on top of what's happening, and there's new stuff happening in our profession every day. New technology, new techniques, new ways of reporting. Uh, kids coming in, in this business, young people coming in this business now uh, can't just go to one newspaper and make a living as easily as you could in my generation. Uh, it was never a, 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 a you know a, a profession that's going to make you rich. You, you didn't go into it for that reason. Uh, but these days, they uh, find themselves uh, uh, plugging into various websites, blogs, uh, and uh, maybe freelancing for several different news operations at the same time. Uh, and uh, they are, are very enterprising. And that is something that is very much like my generation was, and I think that's going to continue, uh, that these things show up in early adolescence, these these uh, attributes, you know, uh, uh, enjoying people enough to want to go out and interview them, uh, uh, the research, uh, the writing, all those challenges, uh, finding the narrative and conveying that to your readers out there. And let me not shortchange video because... The, the new generation is multimedia. They don't just think in terms of writing uh, on paper. They think in terms of putting something on the web, video, audio, uh, giving you real-time coverage on events through Facebook or various other media. Uh, and that is something that uh, I find very exciting about them. And they uh, talking to them uh, can very often be like, you know, well, just, just talking across generations that we may have big gaps on the kind of music we like, but <laughs> we understand the value of narrative and people and, and getting the story. Uh, and I think that's what uh, is going to continue for the foreseeable future. I, I think you're right. There have never been so many ways to tell stories. There's so many stories out there. It's all about the stories. If, if, you, were, if you were 20 years old today, how would you um, want to be telling stories? What, where would you start to look yourself? Are you a print guy, a broadcast guy, or are you, would you get more into visual stuff? I think, yeah, I think I would do it all. Uh, what I care about is being able to convey my story. First of all, you want to get the public's attention. As an old network executive told me, you want to get them into the tent first before you can sell them the snake oil. And so <laughs> that means you've got to 
have, whether it's visual or, or something that is read or whether it's radio, uh, you want to, first of all, have the elements of storytelling that sparks your audience's interest and then uh, be able to tell the story with a clarity that enables them to understand right away. Uh, somebody once called journalism uh, literature in a hurry, and I think that's still true. Uh, whether it's uh, actual literature or video or sound. So if I was out there today, I would be uh, one of these multimedia geeks, which is not that hard to do now, because if you've got a smartphone in your pocket, you have more technology in your pocket than we had in our entire CBS-affiliated TV station back when I was working in TV in the early 80s. Uh, and uh, that's why there's so much, you know, let's just take one issue, the police brutality issue which was behind most of the riots that were sparked in the late 60s were around issues of police conduct. Uh, now, you've got, with everybody carrying smartphones, they're all getting video of these episodes. So it's not just the, uh, the uh, what, uh, victim's uh, word against, or, or the witness's word against the police. It's the, it's the viewer can see for themselves. And we've seen several high-profile cases that were decided because of the video. If, we, if the video hadn't been there, it would have, it would have been open and shut. Uh, and so that, that's just one example of what you can do with technology now, uh, not just to cover news, but also to have an impact on it. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Ready to advance your career while accommodating your busy schedule? Central Ohio's only Executive Master of Public Administration program for working professionals can help you. It's conducted by the Ohio University Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at the new Ohio Dublin Center campus. It's affordable and meets just three weekends per semester. No GRE is required for admission. For more information, visit oempa.ohio.edu. There's a transparency that is both frightening sometimes because of what we see, but is also encouraging. You've used the phrase... um, racial optimism and talking about race issues and, and issues that are really difficult for uh, many folks to talk about. And you've had different views of racial optimism at the moment, and meaning, I think, how do we collectively feel about um, issues of race and social justice in our country? Given this new transparency, given the uh, the new access for all kinds of people to get involved in journalism and commentary. What would you say is your level of racial optimism today? And how would you, what kind of score would you give the country? I can feel a column welling up in the back of my mind. As oh, good. <laughs> it's all grist, as we say, <laughs> all grist for the mill. I, I would say that um, I am, well, I, I'm still a racial optimist and uh I think, if anything, uh, the word racial may be too confining these days because uh, I am uh, thinking a lot about how uh, our language is changing and how it needs to change in many ways. Uh, The way 
we related to race back in the 60s was black and white. Well, you look at the America today and you can see uh, who, who's having the most uh, uh, tensions. It's, it's like black Muslims, it's, it's Arabs, Middle East people, it's uh, uh, immigrants, uh, particularly from Latin America. Uh, we are a more complicated uh, society in some ways, uh, or, or the complexity has changed. I actually, I'm using, I've been using the word tribal a lot more than racial lately, uh, because I, I, I've long felt that uh, race is a construct. You know, I, I mean, my wife is uh, a product of, of a mixed marriage. Uh, we are all, I mean, about every black person in America, if you trace back uh, it'd be hard pressed not to find some non-black blood. I've got some Native American blood, and, and uh, uh, a European as well. Uh, and what really counts these days? You know, uh, we have a bigger gap now between uh, black folks who are well off and those who are not well off uh, than we had between blacks and whites back in the '60s. Uh, so issues of economic class come into play now. But getting back to your question about am I optimistic or pessimistic, you know, I was, like a lot of Americans, I was super optimistic when Barack Obama was elected. Uh, and, and I know many conservative Republicans who were also optimistic racially uh, by Obama's election because they said, well, at least uh, we've shown that America is still something of the land of opportunity. We all like to believe it is. Uh, but then, you know, uh, following Obama, we had Donald Trump and I'm not against Trump per se, but I don't like the way he campaigned for office. From day one, he appealed to, to xenophobia and irrational fears of immigrants. And I say irrational fears because uh, he, he went way beyond uh, actually what, what could actually be documented uh, as far as dangers posed by uh, uh, undocumented immigrants. Uh, and uh, But it, it, it was the kind of uh, issue that for time immemorial has been used by demagogic uh, politicians because there's always that sort of a fear right beneath the surface, even in the best of times. There's other uh, paranoid fears people have about folks who don't look like they do or don't talk like they do or, or come from a different kind of neighborhood than they do. Uh, and uh, I thought that was a step backwards. But at the same time, though, you know, uh, Donald Trump's election got a lot of people off their backsides, didn't it? It did indeed. <laughs> you know, whether they're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, it got people off their backsides and involved uh, and voting. And now we are in, uh, what's the old line uh, 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 about, about the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times? Yeah. <laughs> we are still living in interesting times. Well, we, uh, we certainly are. And I, I think going back to sort of the state of journalism, there are... Um, I think, reason for racial optimism, just because we're talking about things we wouldn't have been able to talk about. We're, we That's have right. the means to examine, we have the means to convene, because we can do it virtually, If we're, in addition to having opportunities to do it within our institutions. But I don't think you can have racial optimism or any other kind of optimism unless you can have First Amendment optimism. That gotcha. uh, what all of this depends on is an open dialogue and a critical... Um, very uh, determined and highly ethical press. What, what, what's the state of your First Amendment optimism? Are you kind of worried these days, or um, how do you yeah. assess it? Well, I'm, I'm on the board of the Committee to Protect Journalists, which Meryl Streep nicely gave a, a plug to uh, during the Golden Globes last year, and 
And as a result, we got about a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, contributions uh, in the mail overnight. And, and, and then uh, other organizations and all, well, r- really press organizations across the board. I'm also on the, uh, uh, the board of the Fund for Investigative Journalism, uh, and I'm involved in some other press organizations. All of them, Reporters Committee for Civil Rights and various others, all have, have had something of a bonanza of contributions and, and, and uh, uh, support from people across the country. When I was talking about people getting off their backsides, that's one example of it. Because when folks see the president uh, calling the media names and talking about media conspiracies and all, the sort of talk we usually hear from dictatorships, that has upset a lot of people and, and they want to get involved. Now, people are taking a new look at the First Amendment uh, now and and the value of it, uh, free speech, free press, uh, right to assemble, all of these rights are very important, and uh, they uh, are always, I, I don't like to be paranoid and say they're always under threat, but in some ways they are. They certainly are if you don't pay attention. <laughs> and they're going to, before you know it, you're going to wake up and, and see suddenly these freedoms are gone. Uh, so I think it's, uh, uh, in, in the long run, it has helped us to have a more healthy dialogue uh, as we prepare for a, another round of congressional and presidential elections. And, and there's some other encouraging trends out there. Part of the problem, of course, is the business model for journalism. But the, yep. the new wave of, of uh, nonprofit journal, journalism entities, all kinds of prize-winning efforts, that's something that people uh, can get involved in or support on a local level, as well as these wonderful national organizations that you were mentioning. Yeah. So there, there's some reason for, for journalism optimism. Oh, yeah, there is. Uh, and uh, one thing about not-for-profit press, first of all, the business model, you're absolutely right. The business model is 400 years old. It goes back to Gutenberg. <laughs> and and uh, uh, that is, that's the model for newspapers. Uh, and, but now, uh, investigative journalism, for example, uh, I mentioned the Fund for Investigative Journalism, one of the groups I belong to. There's a number of different uh, not-for-profit enterprises like ProPublica and others that have more or less taken over most of the investigative journalism in the country, local and national, and uh, because it's it's not a profit center. Uh, it's not easy uh, to sell uh, uh, lots of ads around investigative journalism because uh, it's very labor-intensive. Uh, an investigative reporter has to be cut loose for, for weeks or more uh, in order to uh, uh, come back with a story and you don't even have a guarantee that you're going to get the story in the end. Uh, and uh, that's not the kind of thing that, that the business side likes to hear about. Uh, and so uh, investigative journalism has ha, has become financially starved on the for-profit side. But not for profit. Uh, there's a, a new boom in a way. Uh, we can always use more of it. But uh, I'm happy to say that, that there's so much interest now. It's much easier to start the conversation now to say we need support for investigative journalism because most people already are convinced before you walk in the door. Yeah. Uh, and so that has made a difference. And, well, uh, well, Clarence, uh, I, I know that whatever uh, happens as journalism uh, continues to take new forms and use new technologies, you're going to be right in there in the mix. Um, it's um, wonderful to watch you popping up and you places and 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 working with um, new media. Do you have any uh, sort of final advice for uh, folks who are thinking about a career in journalism today? You know, I, I, I'm still giving the same advice I gave uh, almost 50 years ago when I was coming out of college, uh, uh, and that is be flexible. Because 
I was told back then, be flexible because you, you don't know where your next job opportunity is going to be. Uh, remember back when you and I met, I was dreaming actually uh, of being a uh, what uh, a reporter, what we didn't call the underground press, but I was really interested in the entertainment industry. I thought I was going to be an entertainment uh, reporter uh, and critic. And I have done some of that, some, some of that on a freelance basis over the years. But I found myself, because of the times and all that, being drawn more and more into politics uh, and uh, uh, social, uh, various kind, kinds of social issues uh, uh, with urban affairs and uh, uh, a wide variety of other issues going on. I even covered part of the of, of the Soweto uprising in South Africa, and uh, I've been uh, I've, I've had some. Really terrific experiences. I, I feel really blessed. I've been to almost every state uh, except, uh, what, North Dakota and Hawaii, the only two I haven't been to. Uh, so if you know anybody who wants to invite me to Hawaii, I'd be delighted. But uh, always be flexible. That's my, that's my I, I, I think that's great advice. That's great career advice for everybody. Uh, we all have to be entrepreneurial these days. So Clarence, thank you so much for joining me today. And again, the book of wonderful uh, columns is Culture Warrior, Reflections on Race, Politics, and Social Change. Thank you. Today we've been talking with columnist and broadcaster Clarence Page about his prize-winning career and about issues facing journalists and our nation. Today's tip is that careers can last a long time. And there's plenty of opportunity for changing. If you're starting out today, you might be working for another 50 or 60 years. And there's a lot of good news in that. You'll have opportunities to do fascinating jobs, jobs that haven't even been invented yet. You'll have many, many chances to make contributions, grapple with issues, and embrace all kinds of work. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. 